dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer Amlatsky, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. Well, this has been a, an interesting week since the last time we spoke. Uh, Dodge City has made the national news. Um, we're nearing 600 cases of diagnosed COVID-19. Uh, we're second in the state only to Wyandotte County, which is in the KC metro area, if I if the, the stats are still the same as what we saw. Um, as of the recording, uh, today is Wednesday, right, Kayleen? As far as I know, it is. <laughs> <laughs> the days start running together, folks. They just do. Um, so, yeah, more testing is going on and is, is going to find more cases, of course, um, the whole point of us testing more in Dodge City and uh, Finney County, Ford County, even Seward County is um, we have a lot more of the packing plants. And uh, as we now know, of course, uh, the news out of, Do- of out of D.C. is that President Trump, he signed an executive order last night to keep the plants open. Uh, Kayleen, did you uh, did you see all that that fuss? Yeah, I saw some of it on the morning shows this morning when they were still on regular television and not kids programming. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Of course, Kayleen, with the kids at home, she gets a lot of kids programming. Um, My TV in the background is set to uh, reruns of Supernatural. (laughs) What can I say? There's something about a black Chevy Impala that just makes my heart flutter. So, yeah. (laughs) So back to... Back to the seriousness of life, um, you know, a lot of consumers look at this as, you know, it's it's a necessity to to keep meat on the tables, and and it is, it is. Twenty five percent of the nation's meat supply goes through the plants that are in Kansas. That's that's a quarter of every piece of meat that's in the store. You know, you can trace it. It came through a plant here in the, in our state. That's a tremendous amount of local dollars that are infused into communities. Dodge City is a cow town. That's what we were built on um, back in the days of the trail days. And we have two packing plants here in town. We have several feedlots that have established um, in our communities in, in Southwest Kansas because of the proximity to the feedlot or to the, the plants. Cattle is our, it's our livelihood, right, Kayleen? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, when Dodge City started, it was a trailhead for, uh, what, the Chisholm Trail, I think it was, and the the kids brought cattle to town, and they always called Dodge City the queen of the cow towns, and it's always kind of been that way. It still is. I mean, with the pack of plants and the feedlots, heck, there's even feedlots that are right on the city limits. 
we have a scenic overlook of one of the major feedlots. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're kind of known for cattle. And so I can't overemphasize enough that every segment of the beef chain is critical to our livelihoods. From the cow-calf guys in the Flint Hills on the eastern half of the state to the stalkers in Oklahoma to the feedlots in the area to the packing plants that eventually um, have a, a touch point with the consumers and the retail and wholesale market. And as we, as we heard last, well, the last couple of weeks with the milk folks, um, we are seeing a pinch point in the whole system. It is a finely tuned, delicate ballet of cattle coming in and going out as prepackaged steaks and chops and, um, you know, hamburger and, and all of those things that come to you in the store. And a lot of people don't understand that in the last decade or so, we've really gone with the consumer, the end consumer in mind. So those, those plants that are preparing packaging for retail outlets for the stores, they are tailoring those cuts, all of those um, packaging, the cuts, everything is tailored to an individual consumer size portion. And in the case of the poultry industry, for example, I don't know about you, Kayleen, but it's been years since I've deboned a chicken breast because <laughs> I can buy them already boneless, skinless, ready to, to add my seasonings and throw in the, in the pot, right? We don't right. have to do all of that prep work. The plant- yeah, we had, we had butcher chickens when my husband and I first got married. It was his, his dad's grandiose idea, and one of our wedding gifts was actually a chicken plucker it got rid of the feathers off of the chickens and it's it's a task to get chicken butchered and broke down into usable pieces yeah it's a task our grandparents knew and our parents probably knew too um but i gotta admit i did not i don't know that task because it was at some point in my lifetime Somebody at one of the companies said, you know what? Consumers will pay a couple of cents extra if we do all that work for them. So that work gets done in plants. They get done in in poultry plants and pork plants and beef plants. That's what those folks are on the line are doing. If If they're working a retail line is they're making it available or in a package that the consumers want. Now, if it's a wholesale line, they're going to be bigger packaging with much more pounds of product in there, and they're not going to be broken down into different cuts. You're going to have a, a larger primal cut. If it's for export, they're going to be, you know, a half of a cow, a half of a pig um, frozen and ready for to be shipped, loaded onto a, a you know, a container ship and sent overseas, and there they will do the final breakdown of those carcasses. Now, I say I go into all those details, Kayleen, because not a lot of people understand that it, it takes a lot of people on the line making cuts to break down a carcass into those individual packages we see in the stores. You've spent time in plants at, 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 when you were at college and, and on judging teams. You know what those look like, right? Well, I had a, a meats class at, when I was at K-State, and I've never actually been into either one. Well, I take that back. I've never been into Cargill, but I've been into National when we were in 4-H, and they had still had a 
carcass contest, we would go see our steers hanging on the rail. And they are a sight to behold. Yeah. Um, when I was in the Carl program, our Carl class went to Tyson over in um, Holcomb, over in Finney County. And I grew up the, the daughter of a cattleman. Fifth generation, I know how to, to feed out a steer. I, I understand the whole process. But I got to say, that was the first time I'd ever been on the, the floor, as it were. It was my first opportunity. I just had never had that opportunity presented me, to me before that. And it was amazing at how quickly, once the, the carcass is chilled and ready to go, how quickly it is broken down into you know, pieces that are used. And every piece gets used at some point. Um, you know, even the offal, it goes to a separate export market because there are places overseas that like livers and tripe and <laughs> all of that and tongue and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And that's that's a very practical viewpoint. I, I got to say, you know, keeping the plants open it's critical at both ends of the spectrum. We have to have it as consumers. And that's what a lot of the, the um, consumer media is talking about. You know, we're, we're, they're, they're looking at it from the food security angle. But Kayleen, I look at it from the angle of our producers that are our readers and our listeners that are you. And you need a place to go with these livestock. They don't just pause in growing, Right. <laughs> right they they keep growing and they get bigger and bigger and like with the, with the fat steers there is a certain point where they can't be hung on the rail any longer in the commercial factories yeah they're 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 just too heavy it's it's like putting a 600 pound person on a on a 350 pound um weight scale it ain't gonna work yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know um and so you have they and all of that is tailored um, over the last 50 or so years, it's all been finely tuned, part of that ballet of who steps left here and who pirouettes there. It's, it's all finely tuned to a, a, a weight range for those cattle. They are beef type cattle um, versus Holstein cattle. Can, they, they work vastly different in a, in a processing setting, you know, just because of, of um, this, the, the cuts that we know to start breaking that da animal down. Um, it's, it's more than an automobile plant. You know, people, people may have that image in their heads of, Oh, it's automated. There's a lot of, there's a quite a bit of automation, but still there is a human component to understanding how to break down a, an animal. And I know some people may listen to that and, and just think that's ghoulish but there's an art to butchery. There is. Yeah, there is. Um, have you ever uh, broken down a, a larger cut of meat? Well, last year at Cattle U, you were taking photos of the uh, of the session we had with the the ladies from Oklahoma State that were talking about the new cuts of meat. Yeah, they had, I don't even know what piece of meat it was. Maybe it was a, a rib rib section where they were cutting ribeyes off and it, it's just amazing all the pieces and parts and all the names of everything that she knew and how she was able to show it you know to the audience and name it and point it out and, and say what it what it's used for and where it goes 
Mm-hmm. Well, and each one of those cuts has been designed and figured out to be the most efficient and quickest cut possible so that the line does not slow down. You know, there is somebody that's making cut A, and then there's somebody that makes cut B, and on and on and on. And each one of those cuts is so efficient that um, when we create, I mean, it's more than the, <laughs> there's a lot of thought that goes into it. I, I, I'm just fascinating, Kayleen. So when we talk about the human aspect of a processing plant, humans are critical to this. And the lines, there are people that are working less than six feet away from each other. So we have the CDC guidelines that were released over the weekend. Guidelines, not um, mandatory guidelines. They are recommended guidelines. And that's a critical thing to, to say here because plants are directed to utilize those, but they are not um, mandated to utilize those. So on the lines, they're trying to slow them down. They're trying to put plexiglass between workers, more PPE, more face coverings. Um, We now have reports of some plants that are providing longer paid sick leave, and we have more testing. Um, But really, when it comes right down to it, Kayleen, you and I both know that those plant workers don't just stay at the plants. They go home. Yeah, they, they go home. They Some of them shop for food. Some of them have kids to take care of. And it's just <laughs> something that I don't know how to describe without coming off a certain way. And like Dr. Trotter said, it's a cultural um, ideal. These people, they don't. They live in large families. They don't have small families. They congregate. They do different things that not everybody else does. Yeah, when they have a party, it's a larger party, and there's more households that are commingled in that party. Yes. (laughs) And the households are bigger. There are more people in those households. So it's not just your nuclear family of mom, dad, and 2.5 children. It is mom and dad maybe a grandparent or a, an aunt or an uncle. Um, children have to go to childcare if both parents work, and often both parents do work. Um, maybe you have one adult that works in, in uh, say, Cargill, and the other adult works at National Beef. Maybe, and those are two different plants. Yeah. Maybe another adult in the, in the family or a child works, or, you know, a teenager works at Walmart or Dylan's. Or one of the restaurants in town that is staying open and um, serving people through takeout windows and, and that type of thing. All of those are critical points. They're all essential workers, all essential jobs. But that's one more time where somebody is out in the community, could pick up the disease, could pick up the virus, bring it home, commingle with other members of their family who are um, essential workers and then go back out into the environment and, and you know, carry it, carry it about. Um, these, these folks, um, as we start talking about, you know, governor of Kansas reopening the state and trying to um, get our, our whole system um, started back up again, 
one of the things we have to really think about is if these folks are working in essential plants and they maybe an idea is to somehow keep them at the plant and provide housing there. And, uh, you know, we saw it in a, in a plant that was create, that was, um, making the poly polyproline or the, the plastic used in PPE. And at the beginning of this whole mess, the plant asked workers if there were volunteers to stay on at the facility and work 12 hour shifts and on their, when they were off for 12 hours, they would stay and live at the facility for 28 days. So that way they wouldn't go home and um, infect their families or have their families bring the virus back into their environment and infect them. And that way they could continue to create the needed material for the PPE. We saw that it worked already. I don't understand why we can't figure out a way that you know, plant workers, you know, say we, we put them up in, in housing here in, in Dodge City at our community college, not just sick ones, but healthy ones as well, and really keep them in an environment where we know that they are safe and we can, we can monitor and make sure that they're okay. And say, for the next month or so, we have volunteers, you guys will work at the plants, but you stay here and you don't have contact with your families and you make that sacrifice and we'll pay you extra. I don't know, Kayleen, yeah. I mean, it's a thought. They're going to have to do something because obviously it's not working. And, you know, I'll, I know that they're getting more positives just because they're doing more testing. But, I mean, it's got to come to a head at some point. Something's got to give. Something's got to, to change. Well, And, and I, you know, I've seen in Reno County that there is a court case going on about the stay at home directive and actually having to force people that have a positive test to stay home. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are positive, you should, you and your family, why are you still out and about, you know, we have grocery delivery services. And, and some people may say, I don't have a credit card or a debit card to pay for groceries online. Okay, well, then let's figure out an answer to that. You know, there's got to be a solution there. Maybe you call one of your neighbors and have them pick them up and you pay them, but you separate yourselves, you have them leave them on the porch. I mean, there are ways that you and, a fa and your family can stay home and still, um, make sure that you guys are safe. I mean, when we have people that are tested positive and they aren't, they aren't taking the maneuvers to make sure that the rest of the community is safe. That's, that's not right. Yeah. There was one that Dr. Trotter was talking about that he said they were, they tested them. They hadn't got the test back yet, but he told them to go home, stay home and come to find out they did not. I mean, if you can't follow the directions of the doctor, who, who are you going to follow? Yeah. And frankly, our doctors, while this is a novel virus and we don't know exactly how it works specifically because they're learning as they go, at least listen to the medical professionals that have have learned as they gone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the advice is there. It, they they went to school for eight years. Let's let's listen to them. 
Well, in the grand in the grand scheme of things, fourteen days to self isolate and quarantine in your house is not that big of a deal. I don't want to be sitting in my house in freaking July because yeah. these people can't stay home. Sorry, you need to beep in there. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I get it. I, I am frustrated with you as well because we are looking at Dodge City. Not only are we the queen of the cow towns, but we are one of the premier crown jewels of the tourism industry of Kansas. Just because we are the Wild West for so many people around the globe. So if we don't start having tourists that come back into this town, there's a whole nother chunk of our income, of our revenue, of our taxes that are not going to be coming in. And then you start seeing the ripple effects of, you know, fewer tax revenues coming in means fewer dollars for local resources to support our schools, our hospitals, our roads, our utilities. Um, you know, this is, this is a critical thing that we all need to be thinking about. And I know that there are people out there that, you know, their stance is, Worker safety, worker safety, worker safety. And I get that and I support that. But at the end of the day, we have to figure out worker safety and balance it with keeping those plants open. Because backing up livestock is not going to work. You were just on a call yesterday um, or, or this morning with uh, some pork folks talking about how are we going to how are we going to take care of pork carcasses? Yeah, there were experts from Maine and Virginia and Penn State talking about how to compost dead animals, not just pigs, but they were saying, you know, cows can do the same. You can do the same thing with the cows that you need to put down. And it took an awful lot for me to stay with it because I don't want to think of stuff coming to that. You know, for people that understand, hogs, like cattle, cannot be held at a certain weight for an extended period of time. And they, you know, the hog operations we have, when there's a hog going out the door on its way to the processing plant, there is a litter of pigs on its way in the door to get fattened up. Simple, easy peasy. One in, one out, one in, one out. Yeah. Well, if you don't have one out and you still got one coming in, there is a backup there that's going to be a problem. And you have to do something with them. And somebody asked, well, why are you euthanizing the smaller pigs versus the larger pigs? Well, it's a lot easier to euthanize smaller animals. Than and it's a lot like in the, in the call I was on this morning, it's a lot easier to bury baby pigs than it is to bury 400 pound sows. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to bury them as deep. You don't need as much carbon to put under them. You don't need as a big a hole. I mean, you could bury hundreds of baby pigs in the space it would take to, to bury 50 sows. Well, and for people that think that agriculture looks at this and doesn't hurt, I, I don't know if you've ever worked hard at anything in your life that you've put your whole effort that you've sunk every dollar, every dime, every hour of your lifetime into like people that raise livestock and the thought that your entire work is, has to be gone because there is nobody at the other end to buy it, to process it, to take care of it. 
the next the next link in the chain is broken and there's nothing you can do about it because there's no other place you can take them because everybody else is in the same position. That's the only humane way to do it. And those people, yeah. that is an ungodly process that they have to go through, that they have to process themselves. Yeah, I remember what it was like after the fire and having to shoot those baby calves and have to bury them and then have to watch the mother cows that were burned too bad because we didn't want to shoot them. We didn't want to bury them. And so we took them to a processing plant where they take cold cows and, you know, it's, it hurts your heart. It still does. I mean, it's been three years since the fire and I can still see those baby calves. Because what's the number one rule that we have been taught from the time we could walk? You take care of the livestock before you take care of yourself because they can't take care of themselves. That's yeah, the number I, one rule. More than once I told my kids, you go feed the stock before you feed yourself. And the one time that you break it, that was the that was the spanking of my lifetime. <laughs> and it's because my dad needed to instill in me that you have a responsibility to provide care and welfare for those animals while they are in your care. And when you when you feel like you fail, that is a big failure to to swallow to get over. And so that's what we're that's what we're sitting at right now in, in Dodge City in places like Iowa and Kansas and Texas and Oklahoma, um, where our major processing plants are, Arkansas, where the poultry plants are, Georgia. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that have a lot of at stake in the machine keep going. Yeah. And I saw some some pictures, you know, on, on social media of some some guys got a barn full of hogs and come get them for 25 bucks a head. I mean, that's better than gassing the things or composting them. If somebody can get a use out of them, get after it. I mean, there's small butchers around. Find a spot for these animals and or find a spot for them and donate it. Donate the, donate the meat to the food bank. I mean, there's got to be a place for them to go. Yeah. You know, there's there's been so many you know, we talked about so many points of the system, right? Well, the regulations that are down on that, that have been put down on top of the whole packing industry, you have to have inspectors. Well, do we have enough inspectors to watch carcasses to go to plants? Even small plants have to be federally inspected. So I've heard stories from friends that have said, well, yeah, I want to get a, you know, I want to get this steer in, uh, you know, taking a couple of pigs or so. And they can't get into the the local meat lockers until September or November now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, play, you know, spots are filling up and, and it's not as if those little guys can run 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um, they have families. They need to rest. It's, <laughs> there's, there's only so many places to take that. And, and, you know, the government is buying crops. They, they are buying milk. They are buying meat for food um, banks and, and for SNAP programs and, and the like. But you have to have somebody to federally inspect it and process it. Again, we... Well, the, and, and then they say the inspectors are getting sick now too, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a... It's a nightmare out here and, you know, to, to kind of take our minds off of it. I don't know about you, Kayleen, but I do have to take my mind off of it occasionally. 
So last week I planted flowers. <laughs> I needed <laughs> I needed to brighten up my little corner of Dodge City somehow. And so I put on a mask. I went to my local garden supply place and I, I purchased uh, several, several plants and, um, you know, tried to do it as safely as I could. There were, you know, lines on the, on the floor, stay six feet back. Um, if you aren't wearing a mask, please don't come in, you know, lots of things. Got everything planted and, uh, place looks a little bit better. My, my heart feels a little lighter for having, um, sunk my hands in soil. I don't know about you. Can <laughs> mode if that counts for anything well but you've been doing a lot more walking out in the pasture with the kids and and doing some nature photography right yeah we've been out in the pasture a few times and took some pictures and just kind of I need a break once in a while and they do too I've also been working on uh, my photography my side side hustle thing and built a website for that it was fun to go through all the old pictures that I have taken in the last three years and get them on the website and write about them. So good. But no matter how bleak it gets in in our job as reporters, no matter how bleak the news is and and how you know just downtrodden you kind of feel sometimes, it's good to put it aside and go and spend time with family and hobbies and and refresh, right? Yeah, we, Sean's got some 4-H pigs that he's been taking care of, and he's got to go clean the pens and make sure they've got food and water and all that stuff. And it's nice to go over there because pigs have such a funny personality. And I don't, I don't know if our pigs or 4-H pigs were different when we were kids, but these are just, they're funny. <laughs> <laughs> My sister, she had to take one to get, he had to get castrated. And the guy that she brought him, bought him from, is a vet so they just took him to the vet clinic and castrated him well he had to stay by himself and couldn't get back on the shavings because of the surgery that was funny watching the other pigs wonder where the, the other one was <laughs> where's the buddy she said she sent me a picture when she turned it back in there and it was pretty funny <laughs> they were all they were all crowded together laying all together in a row yeah so they, they, they missed their friend yeah so how are you folks out there? You can drop us a line at HPJ Talk at HPJ.com and let us know. Or you can call us at 1-800-452-7171. Hey, and do us a favor and head over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. So on this week's episode, we'll bring you the stories you might have missed in the April 27th print edition. We'll chat with Texas A&M's John Robinson about cotton markets and the unique situation that they face with falling oil markets in this COVID-19 time. Kayleen, that's a, a whole other whole other mess of, mess of fish. And then Kayleen will bring us the latest on gray markets and we'll have some final thoughts. We're all safe and sound here and we sure hope you all are as well. Thanks for riding along with us here on HPJ Talk. Opportunity to preserve aquifer 
is by editor Dave Bergmeier. He met up with students from a technical program in Goodland, Kansas that are open-minded, common-sense individuals that have matched with hands-on technology are making quite a difference in the drive to conserve water in the Ogallala Aquifer. These individuals are thriving at the Northwest Kansas Technical College in Goodland, an institution that has a history of regularly raising bumper crops of entrepreneurs. The latest edition is Irrigation Management. In 2016, the college's precision ag program launched its Water Tech Farms project to promote the adoption of various irrigation management technologies to help producers in that region. Uh, Kayleen has the main story on page three, hog farmers facing $5 billion loss in light of COVID-19 pandemic. American hog farmers are facing the stark reality of the possibility of a $5 billion loss because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The closure of multiple packing plants across the U.S. has created a bottleneck of hogs ready for harvest and slow packing lines, or in some cases, nowhere to go. National Pork Producers Council Howard A. V. Roth said April 14th, COVID-19 has created a sudden and devastating impact on U.S. hog farmers. Quote, we are in crisis and need immediate government intervention to sustain a farm sector essential to the nation's food supply, Roth said. A longstanding labor shortage is already limiting plant harvest capacity, and it has become dramatically worse in recent days as plants have suspended operations and deal with rising worker absentees. The backup of hogs on the farms has created a financial crisis as hog values plummet. Market-ready hogs have nowhere to go, and analysis by Iowa State University economist Dermot Hayes and others project hog farmers will lose $37 per hog marketed or $5 billion collectively for the rest of 2020. This was on top of losses in January and February after trade retaliation caused significant losses for export-dependent farmers over the last two years. On the Opinions and Editorials page, Editor Jay Bergmeier's column, Help Needed, Opportunity Abounds in Agriculture, he recognizes the changes many graduates have faced in 2020 and how jobs in agriculture are still needed. Seymour clearly writes in the Washington Whispers column, Speaker screams for ice cream about Nancy Pelosi's love for the treat and her interview on late night television. And in a letter to the editor, Cindy Leitner, president of the Wisconsin Dairy Alliance, details how Minnesota dairies are leading the way for recovery in the dairy segment. Kayleen, you also have a story about how horse owners are also being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic in the story Horse Business Incomes Affected by COVID-19. An April 8th webinar hosted by Extension Horses detailed options for owners and employees in the equine industry who have lost jobs or are furloughed or are barn or business owners. Elsewhere in the journal, there's a slate of stories covering the COVID-19 pandemic. David Murray has stories about H-2A visas and the corn and ethanol dilemma and the $19 billion ag aid package from the USDA. I also have a story about chronic stress and what it does to mental health. Jenny has a story about what milk producers need from the government. Read more on the variety of ag issues facing farmers and ranchers in the print High Plains Journal or look for it online anytime at www.hpj.com. Right now would be a great time to renew a subscription to HPJ too. HPJ knows that the future agriculturalists of tomorrow will need resources today. That's why now through May 8th, we'll be donating 25% of every subscription we bring in for the state FFA program of your area. All you have to do is visit hpj.com or call our offices at 1-800-452-7171 and tell the operator you want to take advantage of this offer. 
And folks, you'll see that we are running an early bird special discount on registration for Cattle You and Trade Show July 29th and 30th in Dodd City. Attendee registration is just $85 until June 1. And for exhibitors, we have 20% off all booth spaces until April 30th. Don't miss your chance to join us at Cattle U. Visit www.cattleu.net. If you have a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We sure want to hear from you. folks to HPJ Talk. On the phone with us today from Texas is Dr. John Robinson, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Economist. And Dr. Robinson, you are the the cotton guru for Texas and and everywhere else. Um, I've I've heard you speak in, in many forums. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's get down to, to brass tacks. A month ago, we were worried about China's use of cotton because their factories were down. Uh, workers had to stay home and at the in February, January, February, um, because of the coronavirus. And now we are at the end of April, beginning of May. And here in the United States, we have a whole new situation emerging with um, cotton supply and demand situation going forward. Could you maybe explain that to our listeners how this situation is ever changing and how it affects growers and consumers? Sure. So when the coronavirus issue first hit, of course, we heard about it impacting China and we heard about um, Chinese workers going to work, Chinese dock workers not unloading ships. Uh, It was creating, in, in my mind anyway, a kind of a supply issue. Um, but that's that's as it's this thing spread around the world become a global thing. It's kind of transformed from a potential supply impacting issue to to a demand situation. We've got basically consumers around the world sheltering at home and not going to retail outlets and not you know of all the things that are essential, apparel is is probably of ag products, cotton apparel is probably the most discretionary. Um, Meaning that, you know, it's not that essential. You don't need to go to the store and buy new wardrobes. I wish everybody would. But uh, <laughs> so. Well, we didn't so, have so, we didn't have Easter services this year. Nobody bought Easter right. dresses. That's the perfect example. You think about all the spring spring wardrobes and Easter dresses that were not bought. That is a that is a massive, massive um, just missing piece of, of consumption there that can't but have a. A major ripple effect all the way up the supply chain from apparel to cloth to thread to to uh to cotton lint and so so we're just you know we're anticipating that inward shift in demand um it's reflected uh it's been reflected lately by some poor export sales reports although this this morning the morning that we're talking uh we actually had a terrific export sales report with china buying some 
over 400,000 bales. Now, I'm, I'm going to attribute that not to commercial buying. I'm going to attribute that to the Chinese Reserve stepping into the market. So the rumors last week was that the Chinese Reserve was going to be buying potentially soybeans, grain, and, and maybe a million metric tons of cotton. And, and they they bought a lot of cotton. They bought a tenth of that, but that's 400,000 bales. Um, but that that's not really... That's not really commercial demand. That's that's stocks ending carryover stocks from the rest of the world being transferred to China if it's if it's reserve purchases. And and the concern amongst uh, cotton merchants and other market watchers is that is that there will be more cancellations and and just a slowing business because mm-hmm. of the contraction from the retail level backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're kind of waiting to see that USDA's April WASDE numbers reflected. Um, kind of a longer-term view of that contraction. They cut world consumption by almost 8 million bales. They cut U.S. exports by 1.5 million bales. All of that, again, in anticipation of of a shrinking of demand because of the unprecedented uh, situation of consumers sheltering at home and worried about, uh, you know, recessionary worries, tightening their belts. You know, and under those circumstances, historically, you know, they still put gas in their car and they still have to eat, but they don't have to go buy new apparel. And so that's probably going to play out in this situation, too. Wow. So now um, we've got planners that are either already done in the field or are heading to the field, depending on where they're at in the cotton belt. Um, already National Cotton Council at the beginning of the year estimated from their producers that we were going to plant 13 million acres. Uh did we learn all of this in time to maybe restrict some of those plantings? Probably there, 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 there can be some last minute switching. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course that depends on a farm's, uh, you know, their herbicide plan and, and, uh, seed, seed availability for alternatives and things like that. But I, I imagine there will be some switching even from what people reported to USDA at the end of March. So the council report showed 12 million, which kind of reflected the relative prices of mm-hmm. cotton to grains in January. The mm-hmm. March report reflected the relative price situation as of early, early March. Prices, cotton prices fell a lot more at the end of March. So I don't think that USDA's March 31 number really reflects the shift out of cotton. So I don't think we're going to have 13.7 million planted. I'm, I'm still expecting around 12. Okay. So, um, and it's important for people to understand that farmers think, you know, a year or two years out on their rotations, on their crop inputs, and you can't just turn on the dime, especially when you've already bought the seed, you've already bought the crop protection inputs. Um, you know, sometimes you are locked into a plan and you really can't, you know, turn that ship quite as easily as you want to, right? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So that would keep cotton acreage from falling to the extreme where relative prices might predict 11 or 10 and a half million planted, but the constraints that you were just identifying will tie some people in to planting cotton this year anyway, despite all these crazy shifts in, uh, in price. It's full steam ahead. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about the supply and demand situation. Um, are, we, we saw that we had a lot of carryover coming into 2020. 
Um, do we think we're going to be able to work through some of that carryover or are we going to add to it? And do we even have storage available um, to handle all of that carryover? Yeah, I think last question, I think we do have storage available, but it will be a large and somewhat bearish. Uh, you know, we're pulling in six and three quarter million bales from the 1920 marketing year. And we have a decent crop, which I think we plant 12 million. Uh, I think we probably will produce at least 17 million bales. So there's a 24, at least 24 and a half million bale crop. That's a very healthy supply, not a crop supply, mm -hmm. 24 and a half million. Um, that's a lot of, a cotton to go through. Uh, I think unfortunately the, um, issues related to trade consumption, the lingering effects of, of this demand shock are going to be with us for a while. It's going to, it's going to take a while for, for the market to normalize. So, uh, I'm expecting basically to continue to have high, uh, carry out levels for the 2021 year, bearishly high and probably keep the lid on prices, keep prices trading in the, in the 50 to low 60 cent range uh, until things just get normal. And I really don't expect that to happen until well into calendar 21. If I remember right, it costs 70 cents just to plant the crop. That's what the, the fellas have sunk into it per pound, right? Uh, probably for some operations, of course, it, it, it varies in our budgets show show different things but yeah we, i i imagine all growers probably need cash prices uh, at 70 or higher to cover really to cover everything including family living and overhead and other other types of fixed costs wow so um not to to add to the situation but we know that uh uh oil prices and cotton prices sometimes correlate or maybe sometimes kind of follow each other is probably the better word. Um, what happens to oil often happens to cotton and people don't understand that unless they're in the business, it's because petroleum is one of the uh, ingredients for uh, polyester and polyester is a major competitor to cotton fiber. So we've talked about rocks creating ripples in the pond and this is a big stone that slammed into the pond last week when we saw um, oil go below a dollar a barrel. Um, it was in the negatives. People were trying to pay you to take a, a barrel of oil. So what does that do? Have we ever seen anything like that before? What What did the economists say with this new this new ripple in the pond? Yeah, it's the, the oil question is a complicated one. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's an ingredient to polyester, but you know, diesel is an ingredient to cotton production too. So when oil prices are cheap, farming costs are, are lower, all things being equal. That's, that's one consideration. The second is specifically the polyester is made from a, from a distillate that comes from the refining process. When you make gasoline, you're making the ingredients to polyester. So there's a question. Yeah, we have a lot of cheap oil, but are people really refining more gasoline right now? Demand is off, demand for gasoline. So I'm not really sure that's going all the way to feeding uh, more polyester. 
third thing complication I'll say is that China has polyester factories excess capacity by all reports, and they. My impression is that they're going to run those factories kind of independent of the price of oil. I mean, I've been asked the reverse question: when oil mm -hmm. prices are high, people say, "Is this good for cotton?" And the answer is, well, China's going to run those polyester factories. Doesn't I don't think profitability is as big a concern to them. So I don't know that it really matters. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're going to make polyester regardless. And I don't know that in the present situation they're really making that much extra polyester again because I don't really know that oil is being refined into gasoline mm -hmm. as as much, uh, just because people aren't using gasoline that much. So. The answer is it's complicated. And I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if this whole COVID-19 situation is going to do anything, it's given economists like yourself a lot to think about a brand new um, set of data. Um, and I know that sounds very harsh, but uh, economists, you guys, you understand data, you understand numbers, and you understand um, people's responses to those numbers. And, and um, anytime that we have a situation like this, it's um, incredibly helpful for you all because we then learn from the next situation that comes. So uh, we'll we'll see down the road how we how we learn from this one, right? Yeah, we'll we'll misinterpret the future by focusing on this present situation that we've just gone through and probably drawing too many parallels. But <laughs> we we, we do focus on history because we don't have laboratory controlled experiments, so we just look back and say, well, this is what happened during the the great price volatility of. 2020. There you go. There you go. Um, okay. So of course the high plains has a lot of other crops. I know you're our cotton expert. Um, we've wonder, I'm, I'm wondering what is in store maybe possibly for wheat and sorghum guys. We know that corn's having a very low moment right now because of the ethanol, um, pullback in demand. Uh, who's going to be the bell of the ball going forward? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, the wheat crop that, uh, that's going to be harvested in a couple of months. My expectation was it was going to, it, it's been having stronger prices for old crop, current crop wheat. Um, and my expectation was, is that a lot of, a lot of wheat cover crops in the Texas high plains, which ordinarily might get terminated before the middle of March and planted to cotton. My, the rumors were that a lot of that wheat was going to be held on to and either harvested. Oh, you cut out on me. Weren't going to plant. Um, it was either they weren't going to plant cotton, uh, but it remains to be seen. It remains to be seen whether uh, whether that pans out. Again, we're all waiting for the June June thirty acreage report to confirm. Did we have a big drop in acres? Did, did it stay in wheat or not? Or did it get shifted to grain sorghum or not? Um, there were reports, again, anecdotal that. More, there would be more wheat and more spring planted grain sorghum that would take a lot of acres in the southwest region. But, but again, that remains to be seen. From a corn standpoint, the the ratio of cotton prices to corn prices has been a, the biggest moving target of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, it would again it would favor like 12 million acres planted of cotton because uh, corn price has fallen, as you said, as it's it's fallen almost as much as cotton has. Bam. Well, Dr. Robinson, thank you so much for, for joining us um, today on HPJ Talk. Do you have any uh, final thoughts for folks? Uh, 
only that uh, you know people need to go in with their eyes wide open after the planting decision is done um we you can only you can only react to what the markets are telling you right at that moment so uh if we have some if we have some rallies then uh i think we'll need to make the best of it and and come in and do some some hedging some selling on some portion of of uh, what might happen if, if things turn around sooner than later um there's always the temptation to well we're going to regain all the ground that we've lost i don't i don't think that's ever a good approach to things i don't i don't think we're going to get cotton prices up into the middle to upper 60s in the futures i don't think that's going to happen so people are either going to be dependent on the government safety net um or just taking some action on short-lived short-lived rallies wow well there's going to be certainly a lot of change between now and our cotton U december 3rd and uh, amarillo during the amarillo farm and ranch show and i'm happy to announce that dr robinson you're going to be our luncheon speaker that day so um, hopefully that we will have a brighter picture or a somewhat uh, brighter picture for, for cotton farmers. And if you want to have, uh, if you want to save your seat for that cotton U, be sure to visit us at hpj.com and uh, find those registration details here shortly. Uh, thank you, Dr. Robinson, for joining us today, and, and we'll see you on the trail, okay? Okay, Jennifer, thanks for having me. market prices from Dodd City's Pridec Resources on April 21st, corn was down at $2.99, wheat was up at $4.54, milo was down at $2.54, and soybeans were down at $7.36. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for the soil health, marketing, and finance issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes May 4th with a story from Jenny. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com slash podcasts. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, Fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends of my day. This country life is for me. Run!